Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This is Conspiranormal. Well, if you guys are ready to get started, I am. Let's Let's talk about uh, some Cornish legends and whatever else you, if you want to get into another, into some other realm yeah, with I mean, this some of the things yeah. you're studying would that be fine too yeah one of the things i'm studying you might be interested in um i i did sort of are, are we on now or we... <laughs> yeah i think we well, already well okay yeah. already began well yeah when when i when i was down at the strange realities conference as you know i did that opening talk and i put together it was a little bit last minute to be honest uh, but i put together a, a talk which i feel in retrospect i put too much in it and i and i didn't time myself either i just assumed i could do it um and i and i sort of just about did it i think but because i sort of welded two stories together which weren't really connected well they, they sort of were connected in that they were both of cornwall um, I didn't allow myself enough time to to fully develop the other. Uh, the it's actually sort of Crowley and Cornwall, basically. Uh, that's part of it, anyway. Okay. Um, and so I sort of just didn't really have time to sort of, as I say, to, to develop it and sort of let people know the full story and how I'd arrived at getting involved in it. And 
since then, I've been, well, I got asked to do this other talk in Cornwall in this October coming, which I don't know if that's going to happen now because of the virus. Um, but I'm going to right. keep going on it because it's a fascinating topic and I've been digging into that a lot recently. Um, and I've, it's, I've probably got about four times as much information as I had last October. Um, and it's amazing how you pick up on information on a set topic just by, sometimes just by luck, by picking up the right book at the right time in the right place. And there's an article in there which sort of fits perfectly into what your the story you're telling. Um, like references to people like Crowley in this instance in Cornwall. Um, I've been reading a lot of the books um, of artists and about writers and artists in the far west of Cornwall because it's, it's a big thing that has been for like 100 years or so. And a lot of those people, there'll be just little references in their books. So you sort of fit it all together. You've got different people talking about the same event from a slightly different angle. Um, and then you can sort of piece all this together. And Well, it's research, we, we, we all know. But um, So if I, should I start from the beginning with that? Because it must be very... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Well, yeah, so, just... You know, I'll just as a way of just kind of saying what we're doing yeah, here. You know, yeah. we got uh, Mark Wyatt, Mark Anthony Wyatt, our good buddy from across the pond, is back on the show, and we're talking and about he's, the, he's on our side of the pond. Right he's now. on our side of the pond right now. Yeah, yeah in, in an undisclosed yeah. location. Uh, <laughs> so we're <laughs> we're talking about the sec. We're going to talk about mm-hmm. about some stories from the second book of the spirit of Cornwall volume two. And we're actually, Mark is actually going to tell us a little bit of something that he's kind of researching right now about Alistair Crowley in Cornwall. Okay. Um, so I'll start with the same. I'll try and keep this very brief. because I know what I'm like. I know. Um, <laughs> so I know I go off on a tangent. And run, oh it's fine. It's fine. Um, so, yeah, just try and keep me in line and I'll be fine. So I get so excited about this stuff because I've got so much of this stuff going on in my head. And uh, to me, it's a fascinating subject. I'm hoping that, you know, well, I'm going to put it together in a, in a proper talk, and a decent essay, all in a, a methodical, you know, order. But to try and explain it all, okay. So when I, when I was a kid in, um, in Cornwall, visiting Cornwall, um, and I, well, my, my mum used to read these books by a guy called Dennis Val Baker. That's like D-E-N-Y-S, Val, separate piece, Baker. He was um, an English-born guy with Welsh parents who, for much of his life, lived in Cornwall. And he used to write all sorts of mostly sort of autobiographical stuff. And I used to, they were my mum's books, but I used to read them, um, quite a few of them. And some of them were a bit what she used to call racy, which basically means they're a little bit sexy and she didn't want me to read them because I was just a kid at the time, you know. And he had a bit of a reputation, this guy, as well. You know, he's quite sort of flamboyant, sort of hippie-ish type guy. He was, I suppose, his major years were like the 50s and 60s and 70s. That's when he sort of was peaking. Okay. And... um, 
Anyway, one of these books I used to read all the time, I used to go back to it over and over, was called The Sacrifice. And it was quite, well, it was a short story, but it wasn't a book. It's a good title. uh, Yeah, and it it was based on um, black magic and lust and, uh, you know, it was based on artistic sort of creative types who were living in the far west of Cornwall, which is the place I've written about mostly in my two books, you know, a large slice of it. And it's a place I know really, really well because I've got family there. And it's a very, very small area of, um, you've got like high granite hills and you've got a very close coastline, very rocky coastline, beautiful place, very remote in places. But the major centres of population are St. Ives, which is a very pretty fishing village. And then on the opposite side, only about, I think it's four four or five miles away maximum, on the other side of the, the peninsula is Penzance. And this area that I'm discussing is sort of to the west of that. So it's towards Land's End. It's a very small area. And this story was set in that area. And I used to read this, and, I, and as the years went by, I used to go back to it occasionally. And I think, well, it's it's so... Um, it's just one of those stories you read, and you can picture everything. He was a good writer. And I used to think it's a little bit too good. It's almost as if he knows a little bit too much about this uh, black magic, you know. And I, I knew nothing about this black magic, as we, we just called it that for now. Um, at the time, I just it was just what I was getting from writers like himself, uh, sort of fiction stuff. And I, I started wondering whether there was a little bit of truth in the story he was telling, because I realised that a lot of the people he was writing about were sort of artists and sort of writers and so on, sculptors, this sort of thing. And as time went on, and I became interested in putting my ideas down for The Spirit of Cornwall, Volume 1 and 2, um, it just grew into two volumes. That was one of the subjects which I was really fascinated by, and I sort of made a start at it. I mean, I did write a chapter about a sort of creative angle of the writers and the artists and, and the black magic, how it all sort of weaved in and out of each other, really. Um but then I gradually started finding out more and more, and I learned about um, just only only about two years ago, probably. I found out that um, Alistair Crowley had been in Cornwall, and then I heard little bits and pieces from people, and some people said, "No, no, he's never been there." Well, it turns out he was there, at, well, on three different sort of periods of his life. And this is what I've been, among other things, I've been researching his time in Cornwall. And he was involved in a sort of murder, or murder mystery. We can't say he was involved in a murder, I mean, he possibly was. Um, so the, the actual event that he was involved in was in 1938 in a place, well, very, very close to a place called Zena, which I, I know really well. There's a fantastic pub there. There's not much else there. There's a church and a pub and a few cottages. And he lived... Well, I, I should get this right. There were two um, particular... So, so a, if you can imagine a hilly place with lots of granite, a bit like you'd imagine in, say, Ireland or somewhere like that, similar sort of countryside. Huge lumps of granite on sort of quite high hills, rolling hills. And just outside Zena, there was two properties which were quite close to each other nothing else around them really 
Uh, one of them was just under the brow of the hill, which was, um, I think it's, I'm, trying to do, I'm doing this from memory, Tarn Cottage, I think it was. Okay. Yeah, Tarn Cottage. So the Tarn is actually the, uh, the geographical, geological feature on top of the hill. So Tarn Cottage is sort of named after that, and it's just underneath it, just under the brow. And from up there, there's, there's no trees or anything in that particular area. It's just all you can see up there is other hills, the village, and the sea. That's it, you know. And, but just below that place, going towards this sort of windy road that comes into the area, is another place, a much bigger place, um, called the Eagle's Nest. And the Eagle's Nest, well, both of these places have got a long history of being associated with creative people. Um, and, you know, there's so much to the story. I, I've really got, I'm, I'm trying to put it all in some sort of logical order. But for now, just know that there's a smaller cottage at the top of the hill, towards the top of the hill, and a bigger place lower down. Now, in the little place at the top of the hill in 1938, in the summer of 1938, there was a couple that were renting this cottage and they, they were called the Vaughns. Okay. Um, I think it's Gerald and Ella or something like that, Ella Lean or something, I can't remember now. But they were called the Vaughns. And they were dabbling in, I, I mean, I'll probably be shot down by people, but it, we call it black magic for now. Um, because they actually were. <laughs> but they, they were dabbling in it, and they were dabbling in it with a certain Alistair Crowley and his entourage. And Alistair Crowley had links with a place called Newlyn, which is on the other coast, but that's only like, you know, 15-minute drive away. And he had a girlfriend there. Um, trying to remember her name. I think it was Pat or something. And He had several of those. So Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, there, there was a, uh, a cafe there, a cafe-type bar place called the Lobster Pot, which was a very, very popular meeting place for creative people and people involved in magic. There was a lot of this stuff going on in the far west of Cornwall at the time. Well, it has been for years, really. It's probably still going on. Um, so Crowley was involved. He wasn't actually living in that cottage, but he was in and out of the cottage a lot. And they were doing different rites, like conjurations and so on, in this cottage. Now, in the bigger property, just down the hill from there, and, and we're not talking about a hill with like neat roads, like you know, like you might get in Nashville or, <laughs> or anywhere else. We're, we're talking like a granite-studded hill where you, well, you used to be able to drive the vehicle up it. In fact, there is a vehicle up there now, which has been abandoned. And the road has grown over again, and you couldn't drive it out of there if, you, if it was working. Um, so it's like an old moorland, there's moorland tracks, you know. And just to walk from one cottage to the other is very, you know, it, it, it deserts you, you know. You'd be breathless. It's tough, tough terrain, very tough. And it's like big lumps of granite sticking out the earth everywhere, you know. Um, so the... In the bigger cottage called Eva's Nest, where I got it, a house, big house, it's perched on a rock, like huge rocks. And that's why they call it Eva's Nest. It's a beautiful place. And again, as I say, it's got a history. A lot, lot of um, creative people have lived there. 
at that time, it was lived in by a retired Royal Navy commander. He was still quite young. I mean, he, he'd been involved in the First World War. His name was uh, Forster. I'm trying to think of his first name. Will, yeah, Will Arnold Forster. And he, he was retired. He was working sort of on a voluntary basis for various people, like in the beginnings of the League of Nations. And he was a, he was a well-known pacifist. He, so he'd been in the Royal Navy, but that had sort of given him his grounding that he didn't want to see any more wars. You know, he'd seen enough of it. So he yeah. was a pacifist. He was fighting for peace, so to speak. Um, and his wife um, was, uh, I think, Catherine, I think they called her Kay. Um, she was very much the sort of same. She, they both, they'd both been to Cambridge University, I believe. And they'd been involved in like the new pagan movement and all this sort of stuff. And she was allegedly, according to some sources I read, she was a sort of do-it-yourself exorcist, <laughs> among other things. And she was also a bit of a busybody in that she was always a very, very nice, very nice person. Like nobody had a bad word to say about her. She was constantly doing good deeds for people around the district. Um, now, she knew what was going on at the cottage, and from what I can gather, we have to sort pieces together. She didn't, as far as I can, I can tell from everything, she didn't particularly like Crowley. And she knew what was going on up there, and it probably was a little bit, you know, stretched too far for her, even though she'd been involved in sort of new, the new pagan movement and stuff. She, it was probably a bit too far for her. And there was a bit of bad feeling between them, at least. Um, there's, there's possibly a lot of background to this, which I'll come to, but on the night of this event in May, 1938, the, the, and I should point out that it's a Royal Navy guy and his wife are very, what we used to call well-to-do, you know, like posh people being to public school, being to Cambridge university and so on. Sure. Um, okay. but then Crowley had as well. So, you know, but then Crowley was just a visitor to this other place. Mm -hmm. um, so Catherine was at home okay she was at home at the bigger house lower down the hill on a I think it was a Saturday night on her own her husband was actually on his way to North America doing business through some logging company or something I don't know what he was quite doing uh, so he wasn't there to be with her protector or whatever now while she was sitting at home reading or whatever she was doing she heard this lady screaming, like, I mean, real fear, terrible fear, she could tell. And then there was, bang, you know, she, she looked out the window and saw this lady running down the hill in the dark. And she was screaming and she realized it was this lady, one of the Vaughns, like a couple from this cottage. And she basically so opened the door to her said you know and basically said to her well what's what's the matter what are you what are you upset about and she said oh, you've, you've got to come up you've got to come up and um, come with me but she couldn't really explain why she was like a gibbering wreck you know mm, okay so she went <laughs> so she went up the hill with her to see what was going on and of course she already had knowledge that Crowley was sort of back and forwards you know he was he was often there and she knew that there was something going on anyway so when she gets up to the top of the hill, Crowley. Now, this is all on sort. This this part of the story, all of this 
story, although it's, it did happen, and there are, you know, there's lots of accounts of it from different people, which I'll get to. There's no actual fixed, um, this happened, then that happened. It's like, it's all a bit sort of hearsay, you know? Right. Um, so she gets up there. Crowley allegedly comes to the door, and they have an altercation, a verbal, probably just a verbal one. And at Nobody point, got in a fist fight that didn't happen? No, I don't think so. But at this okay. point, Kay, the, the, the posh lady from down the hill, <laughs> she drops dead. But they're not oh. sure whether she drops dead outside the cottage or inside the cottage. Um, that's never okay. really made clear. And then from there on in, well, well, the story goes that she got dead. Crowley, in some cases, it depends who you read, in some cases he was supposedly very shook up himself. And Mr. Vaughan, the young lady, the young lady was obviously frightened as well because we've already seen that. She ran down the hill in, in a bit of a state. Her husband was allegedly in a terrible state. He was literally went mad. He, he just went absolutely crazy. And he was, after this event, he was sent off supposedly to a local mental home. Um, but people who've done research on this before me, there's a, there's a guy I'll come to him in a minute. He claims that there was never any proof of that, that this guy had ever been sent to a mental home. So it's all a bit iffy, the actual story itself. But it's still quite fascinating because so many people in the years since have written about it and they've and people have claimed that they you know, they, they knew them really well and they knew what happened and, um so anyway the the thing is some people think that she that the guy that went crazy in the cottage and Mr. Vaughan had seen something which had made him go crazy. Now they were doing a conjuration and they were they were supposedly well some people think they were getting like these reptilian creatures. Do you know what the ritual it was? What what what, what um, it was called? Do you have any source on that? I not yet. No, I've not I've got an actual name for it as such. Mm. But but there's a long history of it. There's a long history of it, not just with them, but with other people. Um so and some people think that Kay that had run up the hill to, to help the young lady had also, she, they think that she'd gone in the cottage and she'd seen it as well, whatever it was. Now, that's that's the story that the people, that when I started digging into it, that's about as far as most people went with it. Um, but when I started digging into it, I learned things about Crowley and various other people and the, the history of that particular place as well. Um, which made me think that something else was going on. Um, and I've sort of got, I'm sort of piecing it together, but I've sort of got a bit of backup with some of that information. Um, so if we, if we go back for a starter, just to sort of explain that this area sort of um, always had that uh, magic sort of rituals and stuff going on. I mean, there, there were always rumours. I mean, when I used to go down there in the 70s when I was reading that book called The Sacrifice, I mean, that's, he actually wrote that book based on possibly personal knowledge, but we don't know that. Um, um, but at least the rumours, which is why my talk at 
strange realities was called uh, smoke, fire and alchemy. Um, because there were always rumours of these um, like white-gowned people, if you like, dancing around bonfires and sacrificing virgins and babies. And in fact, the more you look into it, the more you realise that this stuff actually did go on at some point. I mean, when, when it stopped or has it stopped, I don't know. But there have been um, stories about you know, young women going missing and stuff. It is, it's quite creepy stuff when you dig into it. Um, so, yeah, have you heard of D.H. Lawrence, who wrote Sons and Lovers and Ladies and Lovers? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I heard yeah. it. Yeah, D.H. Lawrence. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Was he so, hanging yeah, out there, friend. too? Was he, was yeah, he part oh, yeah. of that crowd? Well, yes and no. He, he was there before Crowley. He was there during um, the First World War. And he had a, you probably know the story, he had a German wife and they lived in a little cottage on that same hill and um, just below them, I think it was. And the local people at the time, I think it was about 1916, um, it was a very close-knit community, you know, they didn't get out much. And <laughs> they, they thought he was signalling with his torch to a German U-boats out at sea, you know, because they're, they're right on the coast. And he, they were asked to leave by the local constabulary. Um, so they got kicked out of Cornwall, basically. But in his time in Cornwall, he and his people like, I'm trying to think of a name, Meredith Starr, um, Cecil Gray, these were all big names of the time, uh, writers, musicians, um, sort of just creative people. They used to do rituals with D.H. Lawrence. And Philip Pesseltine, that was another one. They all did these rituals, and some of those rituals involved sitting naked at the bottom of tin mine shafts, <laughs> conjuring up whatever they were trying to conjure up. So there's a long history of this stuff. That's um, that reminds me a little bit of like all the stuff. I don't know if you've watched Hellier or not, but you know that the yes, whole yes, the whole cave yes. thing is in that too. So I wonder if there's a yeah. a link there to yeah. that. Well, and it seems I like all so. these places yeah. with, with strange phenomenon around them have these rumors of people in, in robes who meet there and do things and yes. have rituals. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the white robe thing. Uh, your guest, um, he's really interesting, the guy, um, Joe Kistner. Yeah, yeah. He, just, he yeah. was talking about that in one of his cases where people had seen on the edge of a lake, I think they were gowned figures. Yeah, they think there was some kind of weird cult out there in rural Minnesota yeah. or something. That yeah. So um, I sort of lost where I was now. Where was I? <laughs> um, yeah. So what have we got? So so I went sort of back in time to sort of say that you know this stuff's always been going on. Oh yeah. So so the the the, the idea that you know I got from just like really really light research before I sort started really digging into this was that. The guy in the cottage had dropped dead because he'd seen something that had been conjured up and it sort of frightened him to death. And then the lady coming up the hill, she'd seen the same thing. She had a weak heart anyway, which is very relevant to the story um, in what I found out. So at the time this happened, Crowley was not in Cornwall. So he could never have... So, so this story about him answering the door... And, you know, and having this altercation. Well, according to his diaries, and okay, they were his diaries, so he, you know, he filled them in. <laughs> he, 
he wasn't in Cornwall at that time. He was in London, which is like 300 miles to the east. So he sort of had his ass covered, so to speak, and that he wasn't there. Yeah, had an alibi. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's a posh way of saying it. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> so yeah, so what, what I'm trying to get to is that people, I'm trying to think of their names, but he lived, he spent a lot of time in London as well, Alistair Crowley. And there were little isolated stories that I picked up on where people, there was one particular couple who knew him really well. Have you ever seen these escalators on the underground system in London? I'm sure you've got them elsewhere in America, but like these huge escalators, like really long and steep escalators. And you've, oh, yeah. got, you've got one that goes down and one that comes up. And they're not necessarily right next door to each other. There's <laughs> usually quite a big gap between them. Um, so this couple were on their way up an escalator when they saw Alistair Crowley. And you know how distinctive he was. He was coming down on the opposite one. They watched him for some time and they sort of nudged each other. You know, it's Alistair Crowley. They knew him. He wasn't like a close friend. I think he was an acquaintance. So he didn't sort of acknowledge him or anything. But they clearly saw him going down on the other escalator. And they were just sort of coming off the top of the escalator. And as they come off the top, who was coming towards them? Alistair Crowley. So he had, he, well, it's, it's a couple of things here. So the automatic thing is, yes, he's got a doppelganger or did have. But, and that's like the regular thing that people would just go straight to. But when I've been digging into this, he was involved with a guy called John, I'm not sure how you say it, John Calper Powis. And John Cowper, I've probably said that totally wrong. John Cowper Powers. Because that's a Welsh name, isn't it? Yeah, I believe it is, actually, yeah. Yeah, yeah I know, the last bit definitely is, isn't it, Powers? Um, he allegedly, no, I'm not sure which way around this worked. One of them taught the other one, well, I'm not sure yet, because I can't really get to the bottom of that, how to project, how to astrally project their image to another place, you know. So then, you, so then you got that going on. You think, well, was it a doppelganger, a natural one, you know, or was it something astral? Now, the reason I say that is, although it sounds crazy to some, I'm sure, there was another case where one of Alistair Crowley's ex-girlfriends, and as you said earlier, he had plenty of them. One of his girlfriends, when they split up, it hadn't ended very well. And she said that she came home. Now, bear in mind, she was like 300 miles from where he was living. She came home from work, went into a house. It was all locked up. You know, she lived there on her own. Put all the lights on this big old Victorian house or whatever. And when she puts the light on in her dining room, Alistair Crowley is sitting in her dining room. So Alistair Crowley stands up doesn't say a word. She doesn't say a word because she's so shocked. He just gets up and walks out. He allegedly wasn't even in London or, or you know, he, he was in Gormont. So did he have some trick, if you like, some, you know, astral magic trick, whatever it was. Yeah, did he astral project yeah, he did, himself? Yeah, did he do that? <laughs> 
Which makes you think, is that what happened? Because he had a running grudge with this K lady, K Mans- uh, is it Forster, sorry, K Forster. So she had, oh, and I, thought I should have mentioned, sorry, she was also a magistrate, you know, working for the courts. And she hadn't been getting on very well with him, and she didn't like what he was up to. She'd got him kicked out of Cornwall. The constabulary, had, you know, local police constabulary, had chucked him out before this happened. And, of course, his diaries also said he wasn't there. So the reason, if, if he's got that grudge because he's been kicked out and he knows who's behind it, was that a revenge hit? a very subtle one, did he project himself to that cottage? I mean, I don't know. It's just crazy. It's, but who knows? You know, because you've got these other stories that's, for, which are not directly connected. And they sort of suggest that might have been the case. So maybe, because um, one of the stories suggests that, they, that she did see Crowley looking through the window of the cottage. So <laughs> it's all sort of very complicated, but so did he project his image down there? Well, if anybody could have done it, it probably would have been him. Yeah. It, it's just, it seems impossible to, to us, but you know, who knows? Um, the other, there's so many weird things connected with a story as well. Like, um, in 1910, so this is like 28 years before the, uh, the the unexplained death, shall we say. There was a book written called The Devil's Foot. And the storyline was almost exactly the same as what happened that night at the cottage. Um, so it's almost like life was imitating art sort of thing, you know. Um, and then at the time when it, when it did actually happen you had at least three different books came out in the next few years from um, the Dennis Val Baker character. He wrote, I'm trying, I can't remember what this was called now. He wrote one which was based on that exact story. Um, a guy called A.L. Rouse, he wrote one called The Night at the Khan, which was almost exactly, they just changed the names and places. And another guy called Frank Baker did the same thing. Um, but the thing about all of these people, and I'm going to try and put it into some sort of methodical order so it all makes sense and all the different connections, um, is that this this magic, um, these rituals and conjurations, whatever, were going on for decades, and they possibly still are. Um, mm. Okay. And there are places down there where you do... You know, people are regularly reported there are certain stretches of the road, but sort of quite near there, actually, where some people would find it difficult to even drive there because it just feels bad, you know. Um, it's it's have, gone on. Have you, know, you ever had that kind of experience? Not, not personally, no. Yeah. I, the, the thing is, when you drive through there, they, the locals, it's like, you can imagine very windy lanes sort of around these fields, basically, and they're very narrow roads. And if if you don't actually live there, I mean, I, I don't actually live in that part. I mean, I know it well, but I don't live there. Um, so I tend to be more like a tourist when I'm there because I, I drive around with care. <laughs> but the locals will drive 
very, very fast on those narrow roads. And they don't particularly like outsiders on their roads. You know, they'll they'll sit on your backside and annoy you. So when so when you're driving there, what I'm trying to say is when you're driving there, you haven't really got time to tune in <laughs> because you've quite often got some local plumber in a rush to get to a job and he's sitting on your backside doing eighty, you know. So <laughs> so no, I haven't. The answer to that is um, not there, nowhere around it. The actual pub in the village is haunted. Um, and I'm trying to remember who it was. Um, oh, I can't think of his name now. But there's been a few uh, people, sort of, some very well-known people who lived around the area. And the pub is amazing. If you ever get a chance to go to Cornwall, that is an amazing pub. Great beer, sort of very cosy little place, big fireplace. The, the best beer in Cornwall, probably. So anyway, I'm going off a subject. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about some things in the book. Um, okay. Unless there's more, a little more to that story, because it is pretty interesting how we're talking about rituals and we're talking about how that and just it's it's almost like the chicken and the egg story. Which came first? You know, is it the people doing the rituals or is it the people that? Or is it because it's such a weird area and there's such a strangeness about it? People are drawn there, right. and then they want to they want to do these rituals, and then that just further exacerbates it or further amplifies it. What do you think, Mark? I think that's right. I think it's um, it sort of builds it up. Um, it sort of leaves some sort of residue, I suppose, and other people tune into it, and and it's been going, you know, for. I don't know, thousands of years probably. I mean, yeah. there are places in these hills around there where it does feel really, really strange. I mean, the one place I didn't, um, you know, when you asked me the question just now, I forgot really, it's about five miles away, I suppose. There's a place just outside St. Ives called, uh, there's a hill called Rose Wall, very similar territory, very, very similar. And... You can just sit up there on the granite and get an amazing view. And if you go up there on a sort of wet, misty day and you're on your own, as I have done many a time, it's a fantastic place for climbing on rocks and stuff. Um, it's very creepy up there. And when I was, I think I was about 16 or 17, I went down there with a mate. We, we, we weren't long out of school. And I had a, an auntie that lived within... You know, you could see her place from the top of this hill. And um, we were up there, I think it was in the summer, actually. I can't remember now. I used to go up there so much. But we saw a, a weird little dog up there. Um, and it sort of just, just sort of come around the corner and just sort of stood and stared at us. And it had these weird eyes, like sort of red eyes. Um, it just felt strange. I mean, both of us, mm. my, my mate wasn't into that stuff at all. But, you know, I, I think at the time, anyway, he was he was just as puzzled as I was. And we were generally you know, generally expecting the owners to sort of come out. But I think it was, it was a, I'm trying to remember what sort of day it was, it was so long ago. But we were expecting an owner to be with this dog, to sort of come around the corner, you know, and looking for the dog. But no one ever came. And the dog just sort of wandered off and never saw it again. <laughs> But um, 
I've been up there many, many times since, and uh, on my own, and I just sort of sit around up there, and you you do get a bit of a strange feeling up there. It, it is a creepy place. Um, alternatively, you go up there on a nice summer's day, and you know you can just like lay out there and listen to your music and look at the view. You know. Well, that's weird. So let's talk about a little bit of some stuff in the book. Um... Because this is, we had you for volume one of Spirit of Cornwall, and this right. is volume two. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, well, I guess, well, I'll ask this about the, about this book particularly. Um, what, what, what interests you in doing the second book of having two books about this? Like, why? <laughs> what, what did <laughs> you want to kind of put in? Yeah. What was more, like, unique to this book? As opposed to the first volume, I'm, I'm afraid there wasn't. The reason I did two was because it, it just it was just too much for one. By the time I sort of tried to sort of get it all printed and went went to Amazon to do it, and it came out as this huge book, and I just thought, well, that's ridiculous, and the cost was just inhibited. So, prohibitive, I should say. So. Um, I basically just thought, well, what about if I split it into east and west? And I sort of drew a line, so to speak, down the middle of Cornwall, um, roughly, and just split it up. So they're really much the same, although it does have a different feel to it. I mean, I've, I've recently, when when you write a book yourself, you, you're you sort of living it and breathing it for, for as long as it takes. And for me, it was a long time. And... You, you won't actually, well, I don't. I didn't want to read it myself. I mean, I'd read it all individually, dozens and dozens and dozens of times each chapter, trying to make sure there weren't any mistakes and just going over and over and over again. And the stories actually became really boring to me because I sort of knew them too well. And uh, But I was so keen to make sure that I did a good job and, you know, didn't want to sort of have it published when finally I've made big mistakes. So, but when I eventually got round to reading it, and I, I've read, well, I read this one, volume two, about a week ago. I thought, well, I'll read it all in one go and see see what I think of it now. And it, it's a bit like, you know, it's a bit like sometimes when you ask an actor, you know, who's a famous actor and he's been in a, you know, well-known serial or film or whatever, you know, and they say, well, I've never seen it because they can't watch themselves. Well, it's a bit like that when you're writing. You sort of, um, you sort of become distant from it. But that is a good good thing in a way because when you do go back to it, which I did last week, it becomes as if you're reading someone else's book because you've forgotten a lot of that stuff because you've just stored it away and forgotten it. And I actually quite, it sounds terrible, but I actually quite enjoyed it. And I prefer volume two. Um, I think because some of my favorite sort of stories were in there. And um, and also there's quite a few essays sort of stuck away towards the back, which I sort of, I wasn't going to publish them. But when I split all the work into two volumes, I realized that I had you know, maybe one and three quarters worth instead of two. And then I thought, oh, I've got these essays which 
if I tidied them up a bit, they are quite good. And I was I was really pleased to be able to put them, put them in the book because I really liked some of the stuff that was. Um, I'm trying to think of an example. Um, excuse me. Well, I know frequency and vibration, for example. I really quite enjoyed writing that, and just my thoughts on reality and what ghosts might be, or the nature of time, this sort of stuff. Um, Skepticism and denial, you know, these sort of things. And of course, smoke, fire, and alchemy, which we've just been talking about, or partially talking about. Um, These were things I couldn't have really put in the first volume. Um, Plus it, you know, like the, the knockers and you know, uh, there's any any amount of it really. I mean, just for little bits, like I, I think I ended with that piece about, I was listening to one of your guests the other day. Um, who was it? Who was it? Uh, was it AP, AP Strange? Strange. Yeah. yeah. What, what's his real name? Um, that, is, can, can we I say think his secret. real name? Yeah, I think I it's don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But anyway, he, I was listening to him, and he, he was fascinating. He had a lot of interesting information. And then he mentioned, towards the end, he was talking about the, the, the link between music and frequency and the, the, the nature of reality and all this sort of thing. And it was almost exactly my very, very end piece. I think I sent you a copy of it the other day because I was so intrigued that he'd come up with the same idea, which is a good thing because... I suppose once these things, because I, I, I do believe like, you know, all the ideas, um, you know, like if you get a new invention, you quite often find there's several people around the world pick up on the same invention at the same time. And, and I think the ideas are out there just waiting for us to tune into them. So I find that quite interesting that um, the same thing happens with, you know, books and music and but um, one of the guys we were talking about just now, one of the writers who wrote about the Crowley murder mystery, death mystery, um, he was he was an organist in a, in Zena Church, that same place, and he he hung out with all these magic guys, and he he was a a churchy guy, you know, obviously he played church organ and he'd been brought up in the church, but he liked to dabble in the black magic, you know, and he liked to hang out with all these people that were um, like the Crowleys of this world. So he liked the excitement. This is what I was, you know, reading from other people who knew him, but he he loved that idea of sort of flirting with danger almost, really. But from what, from reading between the lines of what people have written about him and his family, he sort of, he had a few problems with, with mixing with these people. And he was, but one of the one of the things he came out with was, he said, if Cornwall was music, if you could, and, and this only a musician could think like this, really, I think, he said it would be an A minor. So you know, it's got that melancholic sort of feel to it, yeah, which comes back to what you were saying about, can you feel this stuff when you're there, you know? in the countryside on, on around the granite and i think yeah to a certain extent you can right if there's no if there's no one else about you know if you're not 
being pursued through country lanes at 90 miles an hour. You can, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got... Well, go, go ahead, Mark. Go ahead, what's, what's your... No, sorry, I, I was just going to say, he, he actually said, I'm just sitting here, he said, if Cornwall could be represented by a musical chord, I think it would sound like an A minor. And um, It's my favorite chord. My it is, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I quite like it. I like E minor as well. So I like I like the visual chords. <laughs> well, you've got a chapter in the book, and I want to yeah. I want to get to this because you're talking about AP Strange. This actually yeah. is a kind of a cross, a cross to that episode a little bit because we talked to a little bit of a guy named Doc Shields, and oh, in yeah, the yeah. book you've got a chapter called Owl Man, Morgrar, and the Wizard of the West. That's right. Yeah. So, how is this all related to this kind of strange individual that was hanging around Cornwall at the same time? Well, the interesting thing about him is, is um, yeah, Tony Doc, who's just called Doc Shields. So he had been involved in this place where all these artists and creative types had been hanging out, St. Ives. He'd been part of that whole artistic circle. You've got people like uh, Sven Berlin. He was a all-round writer, sculptor, artist. You know, he could do it all. Um, there's so many of them, I can't think of all the names. But he was involved in all that. Terry Frost, you've probably heard of him. He's a very, very famous artist now. Now, he was he was allegedly kicked out of St. Ives by local constabulary. <laughs> like the hill I like Crowley was. Like, you know, D.H. Lawrence was. <laughs> I got a bit of a track record of it. I never really thought of that. Um, he was he was kicked out, but he didn't go far. He just went over to the other coast and along a bit to Falmouth, which is like one of the largest uh, natural harbours in Britain. And in fact, just a little aside to that, that estuary is a massive, many, lots of little, uh, I don't know what you'd call it. Um, you imagine a, a big jagged sort of estuary with lots of little landing places, you know. Well, one of them is a co- place called Place. It's literally called Place. Uh, it's a it's a good name. They, they they really thought about that one for a little bit. Didn't they, they did. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit like having you know steep hill and not so steep hill, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, they had this place. This place called Place was where. And we did talk about this once before. It's where the boy Jesus was said to have landed. And oh yeah, that's yeah, whole, yeah. That's a whole lot. I did look into that. Yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot to be said for it. I really, I mean, I've I've looked into that quite deeply, and I believe that did happen personally. Um, there's lots of links all over Cornwall. I mean, not just in Falmouth, but all over Cornwall. And they have these little crosses. Um, and whenever you see a cross with Jesus on anywhere in the world, it's usually what, you know, the crucified, you know, the sort of 30-something guy, yeah? Um, on the Cornish crosses, it's a little boy. It's the yeah, only place in the world. Because the idea so is that get, as a child, he came to the he came to the British Isles. Yeah, and because landed. that's how they knew him. Yeah. And there's, there's and a link to the... To the to the ten right because they say that it was Joseph of Arimathea was his uncle and he came a, he brought yeah, him over he and he was a tin merchant yeah that's right yeah he he was a, a what we call a decurion 
So he was like very high up in local sort of government, really. Uh, in well, I suppose it would have been Palestine or whatever it was in those days. Um, now they, I, I sort of dug into this quite a lot as much as I could. They would come over and they'd do business with the Cornish, sort of buying and selling tin. And they'd also go on to Glastonbury, and supposedly Jesus and Joseph did. And I say this, I'm not a Christian, but I say this, I believe it did happen. They went up to Glastonbury, and it, it, St. Ives was one, sorry, St. Ives, Falmouth was one of the places that they landed and went from there. Um, oh, there's, there's various little connections with names and just little things that all piece together. I mean, you've got the Cornish, uh, they love saffron. We have saffron cake. And you don't see saffron much anywhere else in the country, really. Um, but, but again, that comes out of the Middle East. And uh, there's also, if you go back before the Celts arrived in Cornwall, you know, they, they came from the... Uh, what we would call the Middle East, I suppose, before the Celts. And they were sort of like slightly darker complexion. Um, and if you look, it's a bit hard to see it now because the population's been so sort of flooded from outside, you know, all of us really, elsewhere in Britain and around the world, I suppose. But you used to be able to see it. I mean, even in my lifetime, when I was um, in my teens, my dad told me a story about the Spanish Armada um, who raided Penzance, which is at the far west of Cornwall, in that same area. And the story, well, it's, it's a genuine, they know this definitely did happen. I, I think it was, probably get the wrong date, is it 1595, would that be right? I think it What, is. the Spanish Armada, 1588? Yeah, yeah, so I think they came to Cornwall, like a few years later. I think it was 1595, something like okay. that. Okay. But anyway, they they came and raided three or four places, very just around Penzance, and they they, they landed. They burnt the buildings down. They probably killed a lot of people. Who knows? I know, you never really hear about. You know, they don't really leave that detail. But I suspect they raped a lot of women. That's what people did. <laughs> Um, and I say that because years later, my my dad told me when I was, you know, 17, 18, whatever, or younger, he told me about the Spanish landing and what it did. And he said, if you look carefully, you look around at the locals, you'll see that some of them, now it sounds like racial profile or something, but it's true. Um, some of them, see, the, the Celts tended to be sort of, not all of them, but a lot of them be quite small, sort of wiry sort of people. Um, some of them had red hair, like my, my cousin. My cousin had very red hair. He was he he fitted the profile perfectly. In fact, I I can actually see it um, even now. I can I'm quite good at spotting these sort of uh, physical. Uh, Unique uniqueness or uniquenesses, is that a word? No. Um, for example, I was watching an American cop show sort of 10 years ago, one of the really good ones, um, and the credits came up. Well, 
while I was watching it, there was a character, one of the major characters, and he was a small, sort of wiry guy with red hair, and he had a certain look to his face, which I can't describe it, but I know it when I see it. And I said to my wife at the time, I said, that guy's Cornish. And she said, how do you know? I said, I'll just tell by looking at him. So we looked at the credits when they come up at the end, and he had a Cornish surname. Mm. So, you know, he definitely was. At some point in his family, he was Cornish. So, so sorry. Well, and so to, to get to the to the Owlman and the Doc Shields oh, yeah. and all that. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll get you back on track, Mark. Don't worry. <laughs> I, I did want to stay off track just for a little bit, though. And like you mentioned A minor earlier, and I've heard a lot of people make comparisons between uh, Celtic and Middle Eastern music. Yeah, I've heard that, right. too. Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Interesting. Oh, right, right. That's interesting. Do they use so it on scale or not? I, I th- I think it's something to do with some of that. I'm not as much of a musicologist, but I think it's about the uh, it's about it's about some of the scales. It's about some of the I think yeah. the ju- the jumps in the melodies. You know, okay. they these long yeah. kind of oscillating well, between these big jumps. That is interesting. Have a look when you get a chance. Go online. Go on YouTube and look for Padstow. Well, I say it as it said, I think, if I get it right. Obios, which is O-B-B-Y-O-S-S. And what it what it actually means in English is <laughs> hobby horse. But they, they say Obios. I probably pronounced it totally wrong. But okay. if you look at that, they, they do that every year in May. I think it's May. And it's a big day for the town of Padstow in North Cornwall. And they have this driving, uh, difficult to explain it, this weird music beat. It's the same tune. They play it all day long on their, you know, local folk instruments, whatever they are. Um, and it just it just goes on and on and on. Now, I actually, I've, I've only ever been there twice. To, it's a fantastic day. The, the place is absolutely bulging with people and they do this sort of dance around town. Does it have a droning, a droning quality? Yeah. Like a, yeah, yeah. Like that's a another, yeah. That's another yeah. similarity I could see between some yeah. of the way we think about a lot of Celtic music and yeah, the Middle Eastern music. That, that, that'll probably fit exactly what you said because my memory of that is it was a little bit, yeah, almost like Arabic sort of sound, you know? Um, so yeah, possibly. So anyway, so, so Doc Shields. So Doc Shields had been involved in the St Ives art scene. He got sort of kicked out um, for a shooting, a supposed allegedly shooting at a copper in St Ives. That's what the story goes, with a rifle owned by this famous artist. <laughs> but he ends up in Falmouth, and he then he he he'd been brought up with all these magic tricks his dad had taught him, I believe. And he was a showman. He was a, you know, he, he, he did like circusy type stuff and he pulled stunts and he PR stunts, this sort of thing. And at some point, two girls had, uh, from from London or something had approached him. They were on holiday and they'd seen this owl man 
and they described him, just happened to tell him. He then wrote to the local newspaper and told them about this sighting. And uh, this was about, I think, 76, I think it was. And that was a time when there was a lot of weirdness going on. In fact, your guest the other day mentioned this. It was the same in America. Um, there was a lot going on around 70, 75, 76, 77. And I, mean, I can remember it when I was that age and I was reading all my UFO books, my uh, Arthur Shuttleworth, the Warminster thing and all that, that sort of stuff. It was everywhere, you know, and then you had close encounters of the third kind. Um, so he, he did all these different stunts. And, and the thing was, people couldn't really, people wouldn't really take him seriously because he'd been involved in this monster. There was a just literally like a mile or so away at sea around Falmouth. There were lots of sightings of this uh, Mogwa. That's M O spell M O R G A W R. Yeah. This was like a lake monster, right? Yeah, it was a, a bit like sort of Nessie to look at. Yeah. yeah. And um, but the, the the whole thing about Doc Shields is he he didn't take himself too seriously, and as your guest said the other day, he 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 he. I think he said something like he. He always stuck with his story, which is true. But he did sort of say it. I mean, the research I did on him, he did sort of say it with a certain sort of tongue in cheek. At one point, he did say, but it's something like, it's amazing what you can see when you've had a few beers or a few Guinnesses. So it was like he was sort of. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he wasn't being entirely serious, was he, just by saying that? But having said that, he grew up in, in every fishing port in Cornwall, and I'm sure probably around the rest of England and Ireland and Scotland, there are stories of, you know, the fishermen would be passing these stories down about the you know, large sea serpents and stuff. And he claimed, I think Doc Shields did say that he'd grown up with these stories. So they were there before he got involved. If that's what I'm trying to say. This stuff existed before he got involved. And people saw these creatures without any involvement from him. So although he was involved in this stuff and people didn't take him seriously because he, he, would, he would deliberately pull these stunts where he would sort of try to raise Nessie. I mean, he did that. He tried to raise Mogwa in Falmouth Bay in Cornwall and supposedly he was successful and there was a, a photograph it was in the national newspapers here in England <laughs> not here in England but you know in England right. um, it was all over the front of the Daily Mirror and you know in I think it was about 76 and you know chances are that was faked I mean I don't, don't doubt it but he then went up to Scotland because he obviously knew about Nessie and he said he would try to do it for Nessie. And of course, and when he's telling you the story, because you see, there's a, there are videos of him talking about this. You can see the twinkle in his eye. You know, he's not like a serious researcher. You know, he's just spinning a yarn. <laughs> you know? But I don't doubt that 
this stuff exists. I, I think the stuff, you know, these creatures do exist. People saw them without any involvement from him. I, I quite, from what, from what I learned about him, I quite like the guy. I thought he was interesting. And, you know, maybe he did see something himself at some point. He did say he did. Kind of a kind of a showman, but at the same time, serious about what he was talking about as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's, and uh, he was he was interviewed by a guy called I don't know if you ever heard of him. If you if you can ever get him on your show, it'd be a fantastic show. Uh, we've got a guy in Britain called uh, Lionel Fanthorpe. He's have you I know that weird, wacky, I, wonderful podcast. Yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah. yeah. My, yeah. my Welsh friend Shelley and um, Bella. I've heard yeah. the name Bella. Lionel Fanthorpe. Yeah, but... yeah, they had him on, and it was an amazing show. Um, he's he's been around, you know, forever in Britain. He's a, a pro, I think it's Church of England vicar. Well, he was. So I don't know if he still is. And he's a, a biker, yeah, like a motor biker. So he's like one of these vicars in leathers, big big boots and leather jacket, and <laughs> very cool. And he's just he tells fantastic stories, you know. But he, he investigated Doc Shields and he had him on his own show. And on that show, you know, the doc was adamant that he had he had never hoaxed the the Mugwa or the Nessie science. Ah. And, you know, he but so, you know, it's a it's a job to know what, what the truth is, really. But he was um you know, he was an artist, musician, writer, magician, showman, self-styled wizard. You know, um, was was the Owlman? Was it described kind of similarly to the um, Mothman? Yeah, um, I'm just trying to find the guy actual description, but it was from the pictures. There are pictures online you can find of it. Um, just trying to find the girl's description. Because um, it says one of the girls gave gave him a drawing of what she saw, and it was him that actually came up with the term the owl man, just because it looked like an a, owl man, you know. Um, I don't think I've got any pictures of it, but it's like I've seen pictures of it. It's like some people claim it could have been like a natural big bird, you know, but I think from what they say, it was just too big for that. But it's strange because the name of the place, um, it sort of signifies what it is. It's like there's there are places like that around Cornwall and Scotland where the name is actually tied into, like, say, with the mermaids. And you get these places, anything with M-O-R-G, like Morgan, Morgan. Right, right. Yeah, we that, talked about that in a Patreon episode, yeah. Yeah. So it's almost like the place brings about, or is the place named because of a connection like thousands of years ago? Um, well, we'll talk about the knockers. We got to get yeah. into the knockers here. Yeah. Uh, and especially because this is something that is uh, mining, and we, we've mentioned this before in relationship to the to the legend about Christ and all that. But mining is a very important in Cornwall, and this is something that fits in right with the mining yeah. industry and kind of the lore that goes back for centuries and centuries. It, it does. Um, I mean, you've got 
Interestingly, just yesterday I heard that some big mining company has just found like the mother load in Cornwall again. Um, and it's like extremely dense in copper. Uh, the percentage was really, really high. Um, and, you know, there's people jumping up and down at top of these companies because they, they know they're going to make a huge killing on it. So we, we lost our last mine, I think, about 20 years ago. And so it looks like there's going to be another one coming back now. I'm not sure if that's a good or bad thing, really. But um, So, yeah, it's been going on for thousands of years. I mean, there's, there's a mine down the far west called Ding Dong Mine, which was actually around at the time of Jesus that we were talking about, you know, whatever your thoughts on that. But... Um, and the knockers have been around just as long, you know, the legends have always been there. Uh, they, they're like little creatures, but always sort of, the miners thought they were hanging around just out of sight. And there'd be like, a, occasionally they'd get like this tapping, or knocking. And it was, like the miners thought it was the knockers who they, they had various beliefs about who they were. They thought they, some of them thought they were the sort of ghosts of old. And this isn't racist, but this is exactly what they said. They thought they were the ghosts of old Jews. And again, that ties into what we said earlier, because right. the Jewish people basically came up from the Middle East and some of them just visited and bought stuff and traded. Some of them settled, married local girls, became Cornish, you know. So... And, and they were quite small people, you know, very small statures. So that's what they thought they were, the ghosts of these people. Some of them did. Um, so the knocking, over the years, the knocking would be taken as a sign that there's an impending, you know, disaster, like one of the props would collapse and the roof would cave in. And so they saw it as these some of them saw the knockers as like uh, beneficial, like helpful spirits. Um, others saw them as like uh, tricksters, like just out to be spiteful and cause pain. And um, they sort of the idea of the knocker, I think, originally came from these sea gods. Uh, the bucker, there was a bucker. I can never remember this. Bucker do dhu and. Uh, it's in the book. Bucker. <laughs> one was a black one. One was a so they're like sea gods. One was a black god and one was a white god. And but they were the same god, but they had uh, like a split personality. So when when there were like storms at sea and fishermen lost their lives, because you got to remember with Cornwall, the fishermen and the mines, you know, they're they're brought up. In, in the same villages, very close to each other. It's a very, very small place. Um, so the, the sea god deities, uh, the Bukadu, and uh, I can't think of the other one. Let's have a look. It's in, it's in the book. I love the book. I hate to miss it. Bukadu. Bukadu. Yeah, Bukawidden and Bukadu. So Widden, that's W-I-D-N, and Bukadu, D-H-U. So I think it was white and black. And the knockers sort of grew out of that idea. So they were, so the fishermen, when they when they come back in after their day or night fishing, they would leave 
free fish on the beach as an offering to this sea deity. And that translated into the mines sort of 2,000 plus years ago. The miners would leave a little bit of their pasty, which is like a, you know, it's an outsider, that's like a, a meat, a meat, a potato and turnip. It's beautiful. I just had one today. Janice made a fantastic one today. Um, so they would leave like a free, free little, um, or a little piece of their pasty as a peace offering to these knockers. Now, the interesting thing about the knockers I find is that around about, I mean, it was an ongoing diaspora, um, which sort of went on from, I don't know, maybe the 1840s to like the early 1900s, probably beyond those dates as well, going backwards anyway, where the Cornish, you know, the mines closed down every now and again and the price of timber drop or whatever. So they would go overseas. So all these Cornish miners went literally all over the world. They, they went to Mexico, North America, Canada, New Zealand, Chile, uh, Paraguay, I, you know, dozens of places I can't remember. They went all over the place. And they set up like little cornwalls everywhere. I mean, you can see the architecture. You can see the Methodist church halls. And just the engine houses all look the same. Uh, Peru is another one. Brazil, um, Argentina, they were everywhere. And I've been to a couple of Cornish towns in North America. I've been to Grass Valley, uh, Mineral Point. And it's like Little Cornwall, who really is. But these miners who went to these places, they took their customs with them. And they sort of suggest, and I don't know, I suggested in the book that maybe these um, these customs. So he took the customs with him, and that's a logical thing that would happen. But I wondered whether maybe they took the they took it with them. So like they took the knockers with them on a conscious sort of level. Um, sort of the idea that we. You know, when we're thinking about anything, if you ask most people who are not involved in any deep thinking at all, they'll say, oh, yeah, well, I, when I'm thinking of something, it's in my head. That's where I'm doing my thinking from. Um, but I, I would say that there's, it's outside of us, that we're somehow tapping into something. I mean, this, you know, it goes back to the Greeks. They read their uh, muses, didn't they? And, Right, in a, in, a, in a sense of just kind of like a, kind of like a, like a memory of a memory of the past. Yeah, like a, a very selective type. Approach. Tap into people of a, of a certain ancestry could tap into that. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. That's what I, I put it over a lot more succinctly in the book. But <laughs> so the idea is that you've got like this, so that everybody would have, everybody has got. Uh, some sort of attachment whereby, um, I mean, it's a bit like when you're trying to think of something and you can't think of a name, for example, and if you stop thinking about it, it, it will come to you maybe 10 minutes later or maybe a day later. Um, and it's almost like you're sending a signal out mm -hmm. and you're 
tapping into something somewhere like a, a vast library of information and then that information's coming back to you, you know, and maybe it's delayed for some reason, who knows. So I'm suggesting that maybe distinctive racial groups might have sort of subgroups which are not strictly um, limited to them. So that when other people come into their sphere of influence, they may well pick up on that stuff. So in the case of the Cornish, they take this idea of the knockers with them. And then maybe a, an American or a Polish miner in, in America or wherever, in, you know, because you've had Polish coming in for years, and various other people, maybe Mexicans, who knows. They might be working with Cornish people or Cornish descended people, say. And it'd be interesting to know what the, because a lot of people, you know, over the years have claimed to see these knockers in, in North America, for example, in the mines, because you've still got, I, I did the research, I think it was something like uh, a couple of thousand mines still working, still, still, you know, still employing people in North America. And you can guarantee that in those mines there'll be people that are descended from Cornish people. Um, and I just wonder whether anyone still sees these beings. And, you know, and, and those people who do, are they Cornish in any, you know, any percentage, whether that's 10% or, you know, 99 on the DNA, or whether they're um, just working with Cornish people, or whether Cornish people work there and left that there somehow. And whether sense? this is a, a universal phenomenon or is more particular. It, yeah, it could be that. It could be that they're there already. Just got a different name, <laughs> which would make all the rest of it irrelevant. But we don't know, do we? Um, yeah, I, I find that quite fascinating, really. But I, I would like to know the figures, if there were figures of like, you know, it's probably not something you could do, but because people probably wouldn't admit to it anyway. Um, you know, those who've seen knockers, but they, they call them Tommy knockers in America. Um, in fact, Stephen King wrote about them, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. There's a book called uh, Tommy knockers by Stephen King. Yeah. 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 It's not, it's well, not that, that great. Not that great of a book, but. Uh. <laughs> well, actually, I mean, I was. I did a chapter, I'm not sure, I think it was in the first book, about, um, you know, thought forms and so on, how we could create things. And you were talking about that with A.P. Strange, I think, as well. Um, yeah, probably so. I, I, I've mentioned that quite often because I'm fascinated by yeah, that, it comes by up that again concept. Again, it? Yeah, 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 tulpas, tulpas. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I find that fascinating stuff. In fact, the guy that we mentioned earlier, the church organist that hung out with Crowley and all these people, um, Frank Baker, he wrote a book called Miss Hargreaves, um, which was in the 40s, I think it was. And it, the idea was that two friends just out of boredom had decided to create this, um, write this story, uh, tell the story to each other about this weird sort of older lady and they sort of 
described her and they sort of invented this woman between themselves just as a story to entertain themselves with and they would refer to her you know how she would react to certain things and she sort of became real to them and then they started seeing her around the town right as a real person exactly right. as they envisaged her and she so, was probably the first talker in literature possibly because there was the there was the philip experiment too that is very what was that called the philip experiment that's very famous oh, that's that. probably the most the famous one well the philip experiment uh, i forget where it was but it was actually an idea that uh these the it was a, it was an experiment at a at a college and the idea was to invent a ghost and they called right. him philip Oh, and right. Philip, Philip was like this old sea captain or something silly. It was just something ridiculous. Yeah. But then all of a sudden they would do these Ouija board sessions and they would start getting communications from Philip. Wow. And they knew <laughs> Philip wasn't real. Yeah. That is so odd, isn't it? <laughs> which, is, which is the one thing that fascinates me about something like uh, Slender Man. Yeah. You know, that uh, people have brought out, and the Phantom Clowns is another one of them, too. People yeah. have brought out, uh, bring, bring, had put a lot of energy into these, create these characters, and for yeah. some people, they, become, they can become completely real. Like, we can manifest them, or something yeah. manifests yeah. as that, because it thinks of what, what we yeah. want to see. That's the other possibility. Yeah. So... Well, like I think I mentioned in one of the books that we, we come up, I think it was when I was talking about Miss Hargreaves, that we come up with these ideas, or people come up with these ideas, and then we all start talking about them. And like in our case, we we go on podcasts and we talk to you and Soraya and Shelley and various other people, and we tell the same sort of stories, <laughs> and we're feeding it. And, right. That's a good point. You know, people, yeah, we're just constantly feeding it because... Uh, you know, like the hat man thing and all this. Um, yeah, I mean, it's everywhere, isn't it? Yeah. It really is. It, then, it is everywhere. But then if you think, if you think about it, though, it's like everything you, if you look around you now, wherever you are now, everything that's around you all began with somebody thinking about it. Right. It went from the abstract to the physical. Yeah. Yeah. It's a so, very her hermetic way of thinking. Yeah, but literally everything. And then when you think of quantum physics, you think, well, nothing's solid. You know, it's just like mind-blowing when you start digging into it. Uh, you know, it's it, all it, about frequency, isn't it? And speed, speed of oscillation of the waves and so on. What, let's talk about the lost land of Lioness. Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, I sort of that that was another one. Like when when I was a kid, I used to sit around like picking up my my dad's. He'd go through my dad's library. Uh, he had he had books everywhere, and um, there were certain books I'd go back to. Like the one I'd mentioned earlier with the sacrifice. That was my mum's. And there was this book about Cornish folk legends, and I to this day I can't remember who wrote it. I wish I did, but there was this. Um, 
story in it about this legendary land that was laid laid off the far west of Cornwall and it and it sunk during a big sort of cataclysmic event. And it had there were certain words in that uh, story which sort of stuck with me forever, and that was what led me to actually like researching it properly, because they told the story of how these uh, fishermen had gone out um, sort of in more recent times. I mean, not that long ago, we're talking probably a hundred years ago, and putting their nets down, they'd caught hold of, they snagged on something. And when it had come back up, they'd found bits of um, like a chimney pot and stuff and um, just bits of garden railing and just, just things that shouldn't really have been there. And, and they could also see on clear days, they could see like uh, walls of like and the outlines of houses under the seabed, you know, on the seabed, sort of 60 foot below on particularly low tides. So that sort of was really sort of like this romantic image and that sort of stuck with me. So then I started digging into it like a couple of years ago, I suppose, and tried to work out when this event did happen because the place I'm, well, I mean, if you look at old maps, you can see this place is shown on some old maps. So I'm certain it did exist. Um, the location of it is sort of debatable because it's definitely if you know where Land's End is, it's it's definitely off Land's End. So if you go off land, well, that's part of it. If you stood at the end of Land's End, at the end of the peninsula, so if you, anyone who's not familiar with Cornwall, if you look at the map of Britain, if you look at the far south of Britain and go as far west as you possibly can, that's Cornwall. And right at the end of that little pointy bit at the end. Um, I'm not sure how how far off a mile or whatever it is. You have the Isles of Scilly, uh, S-C-I-E-L-L-Y, and they are like a, a whole scattering of them. There's there's lots of them, all sort of spread out. And the thinking is that they were once all linked as one bigger place, and they wrapped around the end of that peninsula. To the south, they went around to a place called Penzance, which is sort of eight, nine miles around. And to the north, they went possibly, we don't know, but possibly went as far as St. Ives. And that's more a gut feeling than anything else because there are certain high bits of rock that they have to have lighthouses on and uh, these boys at sea, you know, flashing lights and so on. Um, and there's there's a place called Seven... Oh dear, that's off Land's End, there's Seven... Seven Stones, Seven Stones Reef. And they think that that was like hilltops, mountaintops, whatever. Well, obviously now you can see it's just these rocks which have been like, you know, ships have been crashing into for centuries in the old days anyway. Um, so it sort of wrapped around the end of the peninsula. But there were legends that there were, I think it was 140 churches on this land that sunk. 
So when I was looking at the legends as to trying to get a fix a date to when it might have happened, that was a big clue because if it really did have churches, you know, Christian churches, then it had to be within the last 2,000 years, yeah? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So last 1500 or something yeah 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 actually 1500 because they yeah. we didn't get to till 400 500 i think the missionaries started coming over from ireland and Brittany. so and wales so then i sort of narrowed it down because there were several if you if you look at what other people had written over the years there was always sort of historic documents and mentions of it in various books um they sort of had it down. Some of them had it down for around about the time of the Norman invasion, so like 1066-ish, around that time. I think it was 1099. There was this massive, you know, which was like 30-odd years later, this massive event where there was lots of flooding sort of further up the coast towards Bristol, around Bristol, which is a you know, bigger city, or wouldn't have been then, but... Um, but I sort of looked at it all and all the different references, looked at them all, and I came up with, uh, God, when was it? I haven't got it in front of me. Um, it was around about the time of Arthur. So I think about 500-ish, 600, something like that. Between four and 600, anyway. Um, and that would match the others, all the other sort of versions that were out there, you know. Plus, I looked at um, actual events, like scientifically, looking at when there were uh, tsunamis. There was a tsunami off the coast of Norway, which affected northern Scotland and Ireland. And I sort of logically took that further and thought, well, if it affected them, it would have affected Cornwall too. There's no question about it. It would have done. Would this have lit any kind of... um... Because you mentioned Arthur and the, the Arthurian legend, would this yeah. have would this have um, lent any kind of like to the, to the mythology of the legend of like Avalon and you know where Arthur goes after he dies and you know, yeah, think that, that uh, might have a little something that that there could be a connection there. Yeah, I mean there are definitely connections with Arthur in that it's mentioned in sort of books around his era. Now the I mean, as when I was growing up, there was always this sort of idea that Arthur was made up and uh, just like, you know, with all the sagas and all this sort of stuff. But the more I've sort of looked into it, the more I've realised that it was real. I mean, Welsh people were taught Arthur as fact, you know, up until fairly recently. I'm not sure what, it is, what they do now, but I know at some point the English education system, which sort of dominates Britain, basically sort of stamped it out because it didn't fit their version of events, you know. I suppose they didn't want them to have this colourful history that they could sort of um, build a nation on. Do you know what I mean? They wanted to absorb them. Um, So I've I've always believed that he's... And and I don't think it was just one. I think there was more than one Arthur anyway because if you look at the age range that he was supposed to have been around... he would have been like 200 or something, you know. 
Yeah, I think so he I think probably was like an amalgamation of a few different people that yeah. that that at the time were resisting the Anglo-Saxon invaders and yeah. I think that yeah. that's that that's entirely possible and yeah. um there's at least I think like you said two different candidates of who Arthur could have been. I just yeah. wonder if there might be some connection between like these ideas of lost lands and you know because uh, you know, Tolkien kind of plays with that too. Mm. Um, he talks about the... of, uh, yeah. I don't think he was of that place. I mean, I, I don't. Yeah. From, from what I can gather, what you just said is more accurate in that he was some sort of guerrilla leader that was fighting off the incoming Saxon. Right. And it, right. if you, I, I can't. I can picture as uh, there is some. Um, I wish I, could, I knew where it come from. It's in my mind. I could see it where he left. We're supposed, I think yeah, I think it was North Cornwall, like around the, around the place Tintagel Castle area. Although Tintagel Castle wasn't there during his time, he was supposedly born there, wasn't he? Um, Arthur Pendragon and all that stuff. I mean, it's not it's not my <laughs> it's not really it's not something I've really read much on. But he was supposedly born there, and supposedly when the Saxons sort of overrun that area i mean it's all very iffy because like if you look at history of all the battles and so on between the the cornish and the welsh tribes who were all one and they were being pushed back to the western reaches by these incoming and it didn't just happen in one fell swoop you know it happened over like hundreds of years so the history that's being recorded is all a bit you know you you pays your money and he takes your choice. It depends who you believe and what you read. And but I, I I know that they were sort of they went into exile almost. They they got beaten and they basically went away to lick their wounds and hopefully fight again. You know, and they went to Brittany, which is the far west of France. So the I don't, I don't know what you know, but but the Bretons are basically cousins of the Cornish and the Welsh. Yeah, and, yeah. they're. Yeah, um, they're so they, yeah, they don't themselves French really. Yeah. yeah, it's like like you said. I think last time we were talking, there's like this all the way down through Spain and Portugal, like France, Spain, Portugal, and then the British Isles above it. You've got these Celtic sort of fringes on the periphery, haven't you? Like um, I can't think of the names of them now, but the Portuguese are gone, the Spanish are gone, and the French are gone. Um, now it's quite interesting because so they this the way I picture it is they they went over there they were sort of forced out of their own land if you like they went to so Brittany was like was like a New England really but not not England as such but so it's like the the Cornish really going over there and settling and that's how it all began over there they they were from Britain, they went over there and they set up like sort of colonies and whatever in the far west. And it's quite interesting for me because I went to have my DNA done and I've always felt this sort of affinity with Cornwall anyway because my, my dad was sort of related to people from there, like the far west. And um, strangely, I, I came up with a lot of um, French and I. And my, my surname came from um, 
France originally, I think. And so I think they came over with the Normans. Normans, yeah. yeah. And yeah. then to take that step further, when I had my DNA done, I had so much French in it, like French connections, French connection. Um, in, so the French connections that popped up were in the south, like south of where you are, like Chattanooga. What's that on the coast down there below you, you know, hundreds of miles below? Um, the Everglades. Oh, yeah. Florida? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, around that area, there's a lot of French-speaking people, aren't there? Oh, well, no, you, uh, Louisiana. The Cajuns. Cajuns. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Cajun, Cajun, yeah. yeah. But basically, when I looked at my direct links, they send you, like, close matches. A lot of them were around there. Some were in Canada, where, of course, again, you've got French people up there. And, obviously, in France as well. And it sort of just made me wonder whether there was, um, you know, well, obviously back in time, that's probably where my people come from. A lot of those tests, too, they just, uh, they're matching you with other people who've had DNA collected in those places now. So, you know, yeah. you never know, really, as far as it, a lot of those tests aren't really giving you good pictures of, like, actual DNA haplotype yeah. groups and that kind of stuff. But, yeah. yeah. I think if more people did it, it would become more accurate, wouldn't it? You know. Yeah, absolutely. But they they just need more people to sign up, really. Yeah. Let's talk about another story from the book in the time that we got left here, Mark. Uh, the Black okay. Hound of Rosewall. Yeah, that was the one I mentioned earlier. That was the that was the little dog. <laughs> oh, okay, uh, okay. Yeah, I, I, I made it sound sort of innocuous, calling it a little dog, but. <laughs> it was actually like, you know, it was houndish, you know, when we saw it, because it was, yeah. um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't like um, some really sort of dark, misty day where it's, you know, it was just like this weird, it had a weird vibe about it. And it just sort of came and stared at us. It didn't seem, it didn't seem like a natural dog, put it like it, that. Is the black dogs thing a big thing there? In Cornwall? No, not really. I mean, further up country it is. It's like um, if you go to Exmoor, which is like North Devon and Somerset, they've got a thing about black dogs. Um, I think Dartmoor has as well. That's Devon. Um, but I think there's a, you know, there's talk of like shape shifting and all this sort of thing with, with these dogs. Um, yeah, kind of like a skinwalker kind of thing going on. Yeah. So. Okay. Um, Phantom cyclists. We'll talk about talk about those. Oh yeah, that that is the weirdest thing. That's um, I mean, as I was sort of collecting these stories and hearing these different things, and I actually had my own experience with a cyclist. And it it's so, I mean, I'll tell you that one, but it was it's just so weird and it's difficult to explain it because you'd have to sort of see the geography of the place. But I I was living in a, a two story well. There's two stories of these flats in an L shape. So when you approached it, you drove up this fairly steep slope. And I had to park my car on the right hand side. And to my left, there's just like two stories of like individual, what you would call condos. So they come up on my, as you're driving up, they come up on your left hand side. There's probably, I don't know, 10, I suppose, one side and 10 the other. Um, and it's like an inverted out. So I had to pull over 
on the right of the up stretch. And I had my own little number, you know, we all have our, our, our own number. And as I went to pull into number six, well, I first, as I was driving up, I saw this guy, this old guy, pushing, a, he was walking alongside a bike. He wasn't on it, he was walking alongside it, along the bottom of the, the ground floor flats, along a little path, behind a little wall, and he was just walking along. And he, he looked sort of out of place. He looked very sort of grey and sort of black and whitey, you know. I mean, as he was walking along, I just thought, who is he? Because, like, it's a very quiet place where I lived. And you sort of get to know what you, who your neighbours are by sight, if nothing else. And I didn't recognise him. And he looked out of place. And I was just curious about him. I thought, well, maybe he's delivering leaflets or newspapers or something. So then I literally pulled into my parking space. So I did like a right angle into my parking space. And in the time it took me to, you know, switch the engine off before I went through the hedge, you know, I couldn't just sort of keep my eye on him. That's the point, because if I'd have done that, I would have crashed probably into the car next door and hit the hedge or whatever. So I took my eye off him for seconds, not very long. And when I went, looked back to see where he was going because I was just curious about him he was no longer there and I've got out of the car and gone over towards the corner so imagine the top it's like an inverted L and to get to my flat I was in the far corner I had to walk across and it's lit very very close you know and I walked over there thinking no oh, he must have just walked around the corner and just leaned his bike against a wall or something um, and it's like an enclosed space at the back. There's no way you can get out there. There is no right away. And there's no sheds or garages there. And there was no bike and no old man. And um, I just thought that was very strange. But I mean, I've had, as you know, I've had stuff like this happen all my life. So it's not, it's not out of the ordinary for me. So I didn't think anything more of it really. And I think it was, I'm not sure if it was that night or following night, I think it was that night. I was in the process of sort of moving out, actually, I think over a period of time. And I was sleeping in the front room, not in my bedroom, alongside uh, a sofa. And I was on a, I think I was on like a, like an airbed thing. I can't remember now. And I was just laying alongside the sofa on the, on the floor it's a very, it was a very quiet, flat, beautiful place, really. And I'm sort of asleep. And I woke up in the early hours. And it was quite light. I mean, it was very light. Because there was an outside light that sort of, I could never get it. to. It's like a communal thing. I could never get it to turn off. So that room was always light, you know. Um, and I, something hit my leg, like really, really hard. Um, and it, it was painful for a split second. Not, it didn't last, but it was just like this hell of a whack. Like somebody had hit me with maybe like a drumstick or something, like a like a small stick. Uh, it felt hard. It, it hurt. And I instantly opened my eyes to see who'd hit me. Think because there's no one else in the flat with me, and of course there's no one there. And and the pain did not hang about. It was a weird feeling. It was like instant pain and then nothing. And um, 
I just wondered whether those two events were connected. Um, mm. You know, was it some sort of time slip? Was that guy some sort of ghost haunting the place? And maybe he, maybe he lived there before the properties were built. I think they were built in the 70s. I think I put 80s in the book, but I found out later somebody told me, oh, I think it was earlier than that. Um, so it's possible he lived on that site, or it's possible that he lived in my flat. He might have been like the first person to live in it, I don't know. So, but I could, I could sort of picture him even now. He, he was just very sort of grey. And I've seen, when, when I think about the other cases that people told me about as well, and there's it's been a few things like that over the years that, that people have told me about. And, and they have a similar, I think Michael Williams, the guy, the writer that I knew who died beginning of last year, um, he basically he had similar experiences and he, he described it once as being like watching black and white TV. Um, and that's, that's how it's been for me a few times. So, and he had, he had experience. Um, oh, the other, I'll tell you the cyclist ones first. The, there was one of a lady who was walking a dog in um, Red Roof, I think it was in Cornwall. And she was just walking a dog and she saw the dog was, her dog was off the lead. And she saw this lady, I think she was just about to get onto her bike. She was walking alongside her, her bike, bicycle. And she thought, oh, I better put my dog on the lead in case he sort of bothers the, the, the lady on the cycle. So she bent down to put the lead on the collar. And in the time it took her to do that and look up, that lady had completely disappeared. And there was nowhere she could have gone. So I just got all of these cycle stories sort of came together at once. And the other one was in the mine. The mine I mentioned about D.H. Lawrence going down and sitting there naked, um, trying to conjure up entities at the bottom of the mine shaft. The same mine had a big disaster. Um, and a couple were walking up that lane. I think I put this one in the book. And this was back in the 80s, I think. And they suddenly saw this guy cycling towards them in, in a real panic with blood streaming off his face. And he just like, he just had this feeling of fear. And, and he, he cycled right past them as if they weren't even there. And when they turned around to see where he was going, he wasn't there. So, you know, there was, and there was another one as well. There were, I think there were four, four of these cyclists at different times, you know. It's quite a common thing. And then, of course, it happens with cars as well, and vehicles just generally. Right. People see yeah. them in their mirrors, and then they're gone. Uh, I've had that happen. It, it, it's surprising how many people it happens to. Yeah, you relate one story in... The first book about a the biker. Yeah, the there was the biker, yeah. and there was another one where a lady, I think she saw like these these guys in a car, a whole group of guys in a car, and uh, 
they they're all rowdy and they turned a corner and then they were just gone. There was yeah, no that, way to that, know. Yeah, that well, I don't know. That might be two stories. That might be somebody else's story mixed in my mind now. I'm not sure. Because there was one about a lady in Australia, which was nothing to do with me, who pulled up at an intersection and saw a 1950s car coming the other way. And she was in the 90s or whatever it was. Yeah. And they passed. That was not my story, but that was that's quite a well-known one. And she, I think it was in that case, it was a lady in the other car as well. And they, as they passed very slowly, the lady in the 1950s car was really scared. And they spoke to each other. And <laughs> she basically said she was lost and she had no idea where she was. And she looked really, really confused. And she tried to point her in the direction of where she thought she was going. Then she drove off, checked her mirror. And the lady in the 1950s car had completely disappeared. So it's That's weird, man. That's yeah, weird. That, it's scary as well, isn't it? It's like, <laughs> you know, just imagine that. I mean, this, this ties into that David Polite stuff about people who just totally disappear. And, and they can still hear them when they go. There was one yeah. of those where somebody got lost and they went looking for him. They could hear him. They could hear him, and he was so over here, you know, and they couldn't see him. Yeah. That story like that, I mean, if that story is true, that's like, that's almost like a time slip kind of. It is, yes. Kind of thing. Yeah, my, my, um, trying to think, what was the other one you said about? Yeah, the the one you're probably thinking of was in the first book I did, which was, well, the first corner one, which was the lorry driver, or the truck driver. And, that was from the 1960s and that that's that's a story that was well an experience i should say that was written by michael williams who was like my sort of mentor really in many ways he, I, his books the first sort of um, book about ghosts or anything i ever bought was one of his it was called supernatural in cornwall and that story was in there and it again it's like one of those stories that just sticks with him so he was a he was driving new vehicles, I think, from the Midlands of England down to Falmouth, that place where the Owlman and Mogwa were. And he was just delivering them. That's all he was doing. And he he'd been doing it for years, I think. And part of that journey meant he travelled across Bodmin Moor in Cornwall, which is very remote and high, and a very creepy place. It's where Jamaica Inn is, and. Um, especially back then, you know, it's a bit more civilised now. Um, and he said he was just driving along and suddenly he sees his old-fashioned car coming towards him, which then went off to his left. I'm just trying to picture, yeah, off to his left. Bear in mind, we drive on the outside of the road and he was going east to west. And, he, you know, there was no road to his left. It's just lumps of granite, basically, when you're up there. And he just stopped his vehicle to look to see, to sort of go and help, because he thought that this car would no doubt be, you know, crashed with people dying and injured. And there was no car. But he said in the car there was, he could see, he could picture these people, these four, I think it's four lads. One of them was stood up in the back and he was singing. 
and I think he had a bottle in his hand, if I remember rightly. And he he, he described them. You know, he had even though it all happened so quickly, he it was sort of imprinted on his mind. It was meant to. I think it was intended to. You know, whatever it is that does it, that plays it back or whatever. You know, they wanted to be remembered. And then anyway, he cut a long story short. So he gets um, he didn't tell anyone. And then he got a new job uh, driving a bus, I think it was. And he was coming back into his um, for his afternoon break or finishing his shift or something. And he saw his mates, the other bus drivers, all standing around laughing at some guy. A, a new a new guy just started. And he sort of went over to see what the crack was, you know, what the story was. And basically they were teasing this guy because this guy just told them about his experience of seeing this car full of four boys, four young men, drinking, and now it crashed, and then there wasn't a vehicle. And, and it was basically the same story that he kept to himself. So damn weird. And, and, <laughs> and that happened to, yeah, there were other stories as well around that area, not in the same place, of a similar event happening. Um, there was another one of a... Of a bus driver who was driving through the Bodmin Moor and there's like a bow in the road so he could see if you, if you can imagine he could see across these hedges in this field and he knows where the road goes but he can't actually see the road it sort of goes around a bend but you can see the tops of vehicles on the other side if you know what I mean so he knew he saw a bus coming and he knew there was a bus coming, so he slowed down because he knew he'd have to meet it on this bend. But, so he's seen this, the top of this bus, you see. So he slows down and he goes around the bend and there isn't a bus coming the other way. But he's just seen it. <laughs> it's just peculiar. It's, so, it, you know, is it something to do with a granite? Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. It could be, couldn't it? The, that's one thing too like uh i've heard an interesting parallel you know like tennessee has got a lot of ghosts and is notoriously haunted has a lot of paranormal activity and a lot of people have speculated that limestone is the reason yeah. for that and but over yeah. there it's uh it's granite the granite somehow has some kind of property yeah. that uh well like I mean, it's like the stone tape theory can replay yeah. an event yeah. in the in the past. Yeah, then you've got the Casimir effect as well, haven't you? Which is um, the idea that, you know, because I, I think where Nessie is, I've got a feeling that's all granite around there as well. Um, and the idea is that if you're stood, well, some people suggest if you're stood on the edge of it and you see Nessie, you could be actually seeing into the past somehow. I mean, I, I I don't know. I, I can't see it, but who knows? Yeah. Well, Mark, thank you so much. This has been awesome. Um, it's always great to talk to you. Always great to speak with you. Um, Likewise. What, uh, tell people where they can get the book and contact you and, and all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, Spirit of Cornwall, A Haunted Legacy, Volume 1 and 2. They're available on Amazon, on Kindle or paperback, whichever you prefer, um, in Britain and America. 
And um, yeah, I, I can be contacted on Facebook, really. I've, I, I did have a website, but I closed it down some time ago. I'm, I'm sort of a bit lapsed on techie stuff, to be honest. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's it, really. Um, I'm working on a couple of new books. Um, I'm working on a contribution to a book, which we sort of touched on earlier, I think, before we went on air, um, which I can't really talk about at the moment, but I wish I could. Top secret. Really exciting. Top secret, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Eyes of secret Cornwall. Are, 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 are in the UK, it's most secret, right? Isn't that how you'd say it? Yeah. Actually, there's a there's a few places in the book where I actually lapsed into. Not that I am, because as you know, I'm not Cornish. But like I did the story of the uh, Zeno mermaid, and I, I mentioned a couple of times. There's like an expression where they say, um, instead of saying not. So if you say, oh. Say, say, for example, if you said, oh, would you like a cup of coffee or not? You might not say that anyway, but would you like a cup of coffee or not? They will say, would you like a cup of coffee or no? They, they just leave the tea off. It's just uh, the tea doesn't, yeah. you know, it's, it's not nice, yeah. it's no. And I actually sort of slipped that in. It, it doesn't sound very exciting, but if you, I slipped that in a few times into a, and I'm, I'm thinking when people are reading, they're probably thinking, oh, my God, this bloke's illiterate. But no, it's just like local lingo. <laughs> I thought it gave a bit of that added colour to the story about the mermaid, actually. So, well, uh, yeah. So the, the other thing I'm working on is um, about railroads, haunted railroads and haunted railways. Cool. Um, something cool. to that. So the idea is to sort of get both sides of the Atlantic on that one. That's why railroads and railways, because we don't call them railroads. Um, and I've already got lots of information come to me on that. In fact, I heard you talking about one the other day to on your episode 300, um, a big, big crash in Nashville. Um, whether that was a fascinating story. Um, oh yeah. Well, Sergio knows a lot about that. He does. Yeah, he's the one so that I told might, me about it. Yeah, the Dutch the Dutchman's Curve is the name of that. It was the biggest uh, yeah. accident in the world to that point. Yeah. Nineteen eighteen, I, I, I believe. The railway stuff. It's really cool. I've got I've got some great stories. Um just oh it's just amazing stuff. And, and my, my father was on the railways for some years. Yeah. I'm I'm uh, friends with a lot of uh I've grown up with a lot of graffiti guys, and they have kind of taken to uh, the you know it's like freight freight train graffiti is what's still going yeah. on in in the states. Yeah, yeah, and they've taken to kind of uh, carrying on and learning the hobo lore and and uh, cool. all the kind of train lore and stuff. So a lot of those guys are actually like a, a part of those train traditions now. Yeah, and some of those, of course, have. Um... You know, some of the hobos have slipped between the carriages, haven't they? And yeah, oh yeah, yeah, nice, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I read up on all the Woody Guthrie stuff, and um, you know, and and even re as you know, in recent times, people are still doing it, aren't they? Yeah, oh yeah, they're, they're, they're getting on in Chicago and going wherever it goes. And... Yeah, riding the rails. Yeah. All right, well, cool. 
Mark, thank you so much. Um, stay in the live for us. And uh, guys, we're going to come back and we'll close out the show as usual. Thank you. Spirit Normal. Thank you, sir. Okay, we are back on Conspiracy Normal, and I think we uh, that was probably about like a two-hour interview, I think, with Mark. Yeah. And then we did another about 20 minutes with him for Patreon, 15 to 20 minutes, where we talked oh, about it's, another It's almost a the, half an hour. It's uh, pretty much a half an hour. Pretty much half an hour? Okay. Yeah. yeah. We talked about some several several different things we started off with the started off with a story another story from the book and then we also talked about um we also talked about some of like how he does his research too and then a couple other topics so make sure you guys check that out and Sirfield, you can tell people where they can find that conspiranormal.com is where you can check out our shows and leave a one-time donation. But if you want those extra episodes, you can go to patreon.com slash conspiranormal, where we're doing something every week. I think it might be a little off uh, sometimes, but uh, it'll even out too every week. And uh, we have that great bonus content from Mark tonight, where he talks about one of the chapters in The Spirit of Cornwall Part 2. Yes. And you can join us for as low as $1. Feel free to give us more if you like. So uh, don't forget about the YouTube channel. Give us a subscription there and all that good stuff. And guys, we're trying really hard now to to, to get through all the things that are going on. Um, I know personally I have now lived through like two tornadoes in <laughs> the course of like a month and a half in two different places because I'm down here in Chattanooga right now same with my mom and dad while all this uh, crazy pandemic stuff is going on so uh, we're truly trying to give you guys you know an escape from all that so that's why we're talking about all the weirdness and the usual stuff that we talk about so if there's anything else you want to add to that Sergio, uh not at all just uh, everyone hang in there on this uh, unprecedented social experiment of isolation that we're going through. Yep, that's true. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time on Conspiranormal. Consider becoming a Patreon at www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com. And please check out our YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.